Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Mary, the most powerful woman in the world. No, this is not the title of my sermon. Uh, Rather, this was a title upon a recent issue of National Geographic. I took my son to the barber, and uh, I could have gone first, but this, uh, the, the front cover of this National Geographic caught my eye with a picture of a woman who had to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then the title, Mary, the most powerful woman in the world. I let my son go first as I was compelled to grab that issue of National Geographic and find that article and read it. Now, to be honest, because of my own personal and professional interests, I was actually really looking for two things. It was an article about the worldwide phenomenon of devotion to Mary and the cult of Mary, but I was looking for the name Jesus to see if it was mentioned any time, and then I was looking to see if there was any mention of the four Gospels. Well, Jesus was mentioned, not very prominently, and there were exactly two paragraphs in a very long article that discussed the Gospels. Now, the first paragraph was actually very uncertain. It said, uh, all we know about the historical Mary is found in the four Gospels, but you know the Gospels were written uh, so long after those events that there's nothing really historically reliable we can say about Mary. Blah, 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 typical mainline liberal, yada, yada, yada. But then the second paragraph was actually very certain about what it claimed about Mary. The second paragraph drew attention to one incident from the Gospels to the wedding at Cana from John chapter 2, 1 through 11. And it said that this lesson, this lesson, its significance is that it draws our attention to Mary and it establishes the basis for Mary being intercessor. Uh, Wedding at Cana shows its significance is that Mary is the intercessor between humanity and her son, Jesus. Mary, the most powerful woman in the world? Well, it's because she is the intercessor between us and Jesus. If you want Jesus to do something, ask his mom and she will make sure that it gets done. Well, I'm not here to preach about Mary or to preach that she is the intercessor, but when I saw that article, it reminded me of another phenomenon that I've experienced. In fact, I wonder this may be a worldwide phenomenon too. This phenomenon has to do with the problems in interpreting John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the incidents at the wedding to Cana. And in my experience, of all the gospel stories, this is the one story for which there are so many interpretations that are offered, it could leave one wondering, well, what exactly is that story actually about? You know, I recall as a boy, a Roman Catholic neighbor telling me that John chapter 2 proves that Mary is intercessor. But I've also gone to weddings where this was the text, and the sermon and the hymns told me that this story was about how Jesus has blessed and confirmed the institution of marriage. And I've heard the sermon that says, no, this, this is about how Jesus is God, because who could turn water into wine except for God? But then another sermon said, well, that, not exactly, that's true, but really it shows that Jesus is true man. Because how human is it to have friends and neighbors and family members and to be invited to a wedding? How human is it to have a mother who's meddling in your life even when you're an adult? <clears throat> Jesus could really understand us. He, he was where we are. He understands what we're going through. Then there's the interpretation that said Jesus is the perfect host. 
mean, if we go with what the ESV says, uh, he changed about 120 to 180 gallons of water into the most excellent wine. You would want to be at a party that Jesus is hosting. No, 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 somebody else says he was actually the guest and he was the perfect guest. Jesus saved his host from uh, social embarrassment by sort of quietly and out of the way changing all this water into wine. I can recall a woman tearfully telling me that this was so important to her because, you know, the wedding is the bride's day after all, and Jesus didn't steal the bride's day by taking the glory for himself. Then there's the Southern California interpretation uh, that Jesus was a party animal, the life of the party. He kept the party going. It was about to end, but Jesus came in and saved the day, and this is sort of uh, something Jesus would do. After all, Psalm 104 says that God... Uh, causes wine, he causes vegetation so that man would cultivate it and wine to gladden the hearts of man and Jesus does his father one better by skipping the cultivation and just turning the water into wine because God wants us to rejoice in him and his creation. This was the Southern California sermon on the wedding at Cana. And then there's the take I've heard that this is about purification. No, 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 it's a foretaste of the Lord's Supper. No, 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 it's a foretaste of the feast to come. Uh, radio personality Harold Camping, uh, you might recall he's the one who falsely predicted the rapture in recent history. Uh, he was a double predestinarian Calvinist, and when I was a pastor, I heard him speaking on this on the radio, and he said it's actually about election. Yep, believe it or not, Jesus made a distinction between the elect and the non-elect, because as you know, the elect do not drink alcohol. Once you're saved, you abstain, and nowhere does it say that Jesus or his disciples or Mary or the servants who drew the water drank the wine because they're the elect. Jesus uh, made wine to gladden the hearts of the unsaved. So the bride, the groom, the steward, all the other guests, they're not elect and they're going to hell. That's what this message, that's what this passage is about. That's what it's clearly about. Well, you can see where, uh, you know, I, I could get frustrated. I sometimes wish I could play the host of the old television show to tell the truth. Whenever you line up a panel of guests who all claim to be the same person, I would like to line up all of the interpretations of John 2, 1 through 11. There'd be a long list of chairs, have a, celebrity of minor, uh, have a panel of minor celebrities question them, and then at the end I get to say, okay, will the real interpretation of John 2, 1 through 11, the wedding at Cana, please stand up? And then, of course, the problem is they'd all stand up and say, but I am the real interpretation of John 2, 1 through 11. Well, now it's my turn. <clears throat> well, uh, all these interpretations, uh, many of them, there are features in the text that might support them, and some might be more defensible than others, but I'll draw your attention to the final verse, uh, 2, verse 11, where it says, This, the first of the signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This, the first of his signs. That's an interesting word, the first time John uses it, and the word sign is what he uses for his miracles because they're signs, directing the attention of the characters in the narrative and you, the hearers, to Jesus. Not to Mary, to Jesus. Notice how even Mary directs our attention to Jesus when she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's a sign pointing us to Jesus. Who is this guy? Well, the Word was in the beginning. The Word was in the presence of God. The Word was God. 
He was in the beginning in the presence of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus that day manifested his glory, glory as the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we might say, really, full of grace and truth? This might be one of the problems with this particular miracle. When I see Jesus uh, heal a blind man on the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath as his father works on the Sabbath, I see grace and truth. And when I see Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from death, I see him do what the father does, making life out of death, and I see grace and truth. But, you know, this miracle is really incredible, changing a bunch of water into wine, but where's the grace? Where's the truth? I mean, is it Psalm 104? God causes wine to gladden the hearts of men, and Jesus does his father one better. He does what his father does. He creates wine and gladdens the hearts of many on that day. Well, I don't know. You might think that's strong. You might think that's weak, but the point is he did manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Right away from the very beginning, they believed in him. Now, their faith may not have been accompanied with full knowledge or perfect understanding. You read the Gospel of John and you see that that is true, but nevertheless, they believed in him and he would give them life in his name. And these things are written that you would believe in him, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Yes, the wedding of Cana is told so that you would believe in Jesus and that you would have new life in his name. I heard on the radio recently, they were discussing a poll about uh, who, what is the favorite month of the year and the least favorite month of the year. And uh, I was not really surprised to find out that the month of January is typically voted by most people as their least favorite month. And all you have to do is look outside to see sort of the dim gray and brown to realize, yeah, blah, you know. Christmas is over, the lights have come down, we go back to work, which some people might see as a good thing, but some people might say as a grind. Uh, and not only is January the least favorite month, it's the least favorite time for people to have weddings. People don't like to have weddings in January. And so maybe it's good for us to hear about a wedding where Jesus brings light, life, and merriment through his first sign. Well, I don't really dislike January. In fact, I have to make my personal confession that my favorite season of the church year is actually the one we're in now, Epiphany. I love Epiphany because I love to hear the stories in the gospel about how Jesus does his Father's work. I love to hear these stories about how Jesus institutes God's saving reign upon earth to redeem his people Israel, to redeem the nations, to redeem all of creation, and now in time, brothers and sisters, to redeem you, to make you his people, to call you to be his disciples, and to give you life. This first sign, uh, no matter how you interpret it, directly links us to, you might say, one of the last signs. Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come, and yet that hour would come for him to be glorified when he would be lifted up on the cross and draw all people to himself. And so this sign points us to Jesus who would draw you to himself, 
so that he would make you his own and give you new life. I love the season of Epiphany because I see in the works of our Lord what the reign of God looks like, what it looked like when he initiated it, and what it'll look like when he comes back. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He did not raise all the dead, but he did raise Lazarus. And when he comes again to bring the kingdom in full, he will raise all the dead. And Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He didn't do that for every wedding. He didn't do it at my wedding. <clears throat> my in-laws, though, they uh, had an open bar that didn't run out. All was well, but uh, he didn't come to my wedding. But when he comes again, well, you could talk about those days in terms of wine. Isaiah says we'll eat the best food and drink the best wine. Amos says that the hills, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with wine. I look at what Jesus does, yes, even in the dim, gray-brown days of January, and I find hope about what he continues to do and what he will do when he brings his Father reign in its fullness on the last day. And so, brothers, sisters, I ask you to see the sign. Jesus changed water into wine at Galilee. This sign directs you to him, your Lord, your Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, who draws you to himself and gives you new life, life to the full. May the Lord God, our Heavenly Father, keep you steadfast in this faith and in this life until the day when our Lord Jesus Christ brings everything to completion. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the hymn.